All right, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn back to John 6. Uh, last Saturday, uh, I thought I was going to be here for Sunday school and then race off to work for the rest of the day. And then uh, my assistant, who was supposed to open for me, said, Oh, no, I hurt my knee. I might not be there tomorrow. So that changed everything for me. But it all worked out, and uh, I'm glad to be back today. Um, John 6 is where we're at as we're making our way through this. Sounds like the kids are going to catch up with us pretty soon, so maybe another week or two in this, at least two more weeks, including today. But um, let's just kind of set the context again. That's what we always do here at the beginning. The context, um, the content of faith in the Gospels, the gospel in the Gospels is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. That is the message John the Baptist came pointing people to the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, Jesus is saying the same thing. Mark 1.1, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, these things are not there by accident. That is what we're going to see here in a few weeks. Actually, when we get back into our curriculum, the very first lesson we're going to come to is a very pivotal moment where those very words are going to be spoken. So that's the gospel in the gospels. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And, and so, yeah, I spoke of a kingdom. We have the kingdom promised from David on, okay? So a 1,000 years B.C., roughly, Second Samuel um, 7, the, the Davidic covenant is made. The, the kingdom is promised. And from that point, Israel is all about a kingdom. They are, they are expecting a kingdom. They want it. When the kingdom is taken away by the Babylonian Empire, they come back, they're still all the way up to... The New Testament, they are wanting a kingdom. Uh, Acts 1, after the resurrection, what are they going to ask Jesus before he ascends into heaven? Is it at this time you are going to reestablish your kingdom? The hope of Israel is an earthly kingdom. Okay? That is their hope. That is what is promised to them. They believe God for that promise. So we see that. And when we get to John the Baptist, the message changes. It's not that the kingdom is being promised, it's that the kingdom is at hand. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. It's here. It's on the cusp. You've got to be ready for it. And that's why they go into the water. That's why they get their priestly cleansings. They are ready to be the kingdom of priests, Exodus 19, that God wants them to be. We see the kingdom. Jesus is actually going to say in Luke, the kingdom is in your midst. It's right in front of your faces. And it's being offered to Israel during the life and ministry of Jesus. And so the question is hanging out there. The question is hanging out there. Will Israel crown him? It will Israel crown him? We're going to see today that, uh, well, actually we saw last, last two weeks ago that uh, they wanted to, sort of. Uh, John 6, 1 through 14, we saw Jesus feed 5,000 men plus women plus children. He is creating matter in his hands. He is reproducing bread and fish in his hands. First time we've seen matter created arguably since manna from heaven in the book of Exodus and, and in the wilderness wanderings. But He's creating matter. He is showing himself to be God. And we saw in verse 14. Is it verse 14? 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had done, 
they were saying this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So they see it. And so verse 15, uh, I think we got to verse 15. So Jesus, knowing that they were going to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And the question then is why? If they were going to come to make him king, why did he withdraw? And uh, the rest of John 6 is really going to show us why. Uh, because Jesus knew uh, they were not ready in their hearts. You got? I do have a question. Okay. And you might be heading to this, so I'm going to catch this up. I, I get it. That's cool. All right. I'm, I'm here on this earth with the Pharisees saying, I'm just a common Joe following the, the rabbinic laws and doing what I'm supposed to do as a Christian. Right. <clears throat> Uh, Jesus comes on the scene uh, and, and <clears throat> we all agree that what happened was they missed Jesus as being the one that the Old Testament prophets were talking about. Even as they're saying this is the one, they're missing it right. here. Okay, so so here here's where I'm at with it, okay? Because we have the advantage of looking back on it at that time. We have the advantage now of understanding there's a premillennial tribulational period. There's a premillennial rapture of the church and this, that, and the other. We have the advantage of looking at the New Testament. We've got more revelation than they do, yes. So as we look back at where they're at, what we're seeing is what we're seeing and I think you just hit on it before you started into it, so I'm, I'm going to steal the thing that you're going to. But what we're seeing is the people of that time were seeing the kingdom as a physical thing, and Jesus was trying to teach them it was a spiritual thing. Help me understand this. They are right to. The, the, they are right to expect a physical kingdom. What have we been talking about for months and months? Right. The Jews' hope was earthly kingdom, earthly kingdom, earthly kingdom. Mm -hmm. God made specific promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and several after that, that you know, you're gonna. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna reign from the throne in Israel, David's throne. He gave them specific land that that is spelled out, which, by the way, is still uh, they've never had all of that land. They will one day. Um, you know, just... I get so frustrated with people I'm, I'm like 90% like-minded with pastors and whatnot on Twitter and social media. Like Guys, I'm... Maybe guys I've never met in person, but I've interacted with them enough I'd be willing to call them like a social media friend. They don't understand the covenants, though. They, they, they want to make Israel the church and the church Israel. And I'm just like, if God made specific promises to the physical nation of Israel and he didn't keep those promises, what hope do I really have? What they fail to see and what I'm building toward, and I've, I've, I've said it, but I'm going to be talking about it more the further we get into the New Testament, is that there's... Two different programs going on here. God made some promises to Israel 
that don't apply to you and me. And God definitely makes some promises to you and me through the rest of the New Testament writings that we'll get to that, that Israel's not a part of either. It does, and we'll get to it. But to answer your question, they, they are right to expect a physical kingdom, but obviously they, their hearts have to cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Zechariah says this, um, and they're going to superficially when Jesus rides in on the donkey. But we also have this thing called the New Covenant that is prophesied in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. And Jesus isn't going to inaugurate that New Covenant until he's shedding that blood. They're not ready. They're not ready in their hearts. Yeah, and we're going to see that in the rest of this chapter. We're going to, I mean, when when I talk about they're, they're expecting a physical kingdom, it's not just that they're expecting a physical kingdom and the right to do that, but their whole satisfaction is tied up in what they can see, feel, taste, and touch. And we're about to see that in black and white. Yeah. So let me run this one step further. Okay. Okay. Um, had their hearts been right at the time, had their hearts been right at the time when yes. they saw this as a physical kingdom, and their their hearts were right in that Jesus is Lord, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and he is the one we bow down to, then it's Katie Bart's door because the kingdom would have come right then, right? Yeah, now. I mean, that's what I'm trying yes. to say. Yes. That's a hypothetical yes. God, of course. Yes. God knew, and I when He was revealing to Isaiah the suffering servant, what was going to happen to Jesus. You know, God knew when He said, "There's seventy weeks to Daniel decreed for your people." He knew that the seventieth week would be after, well after. He, he God knew the times already. But the hypothetical answer to your question is yes. yes. If they had called on the name of the Lord in their hearts, the, 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 and I'm not talking about one or two Jews, I'm talking about the nation. Because you had a few, I mean, you had some Jews who loved him and believed in him. They're, they're, uh, also in that, you, 
get a better glimpse of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus also knew of the suffering servant of our Lord. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. That's, that's the thing about it. I mean, from, from so amazing, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't think we're even halfway into his ministry when he's telling his disciples, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem and he's going to be lifted up and crucified and raised on the third day. And then I think he says that in Mark 8, 9, and 10. So Jesus knows. But we got to play it out. We got to play it out. Let's. Um, no, it's it's okay because 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 there's a point at which I want to stop. There's a there's a dev- a place at which I want to stop today, and this kind of helps me uh, stop in time. We'll see we'll see how it goes. But after after the feeding of the five thousand, let's look at verses sixteen through twenty five. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they began to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them, and the sea was stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about 25 or 30 stadia, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. He said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other small boats came from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread, after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So we'll stop there for a second. So after the masses are filled and satisfied, and we get more details in Matthew 14, by the way, and I may go back to Matthew 14 in a minute and read a little bit of that, but Jesus makes the twelve get into the boat and go ahead of him back to the other side. So they're on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He says, get in the boat, go back over toward Capernaum. They get in the boat. They start to go back over toward Capernaum. And Jesus goes on a mountain to pray, as we see him do from time to time. Uh, Capernaum, again, just so you know, it's a common stop during the ministry of Jesus. Kind of his Galilean headquarters. It's Peter's hometown. Mark 1 is where we first see Jesus doing a lot of ministry in Capernaum. They know him there. They're very familiar with him there. But uh, they they go back. The disciples start to go back, and Jesus goes on the mountain to pray. And we get this uh, detail. Uh, Was it here or was it in... uh, Was it here or was it in Matthew? That it was evening. It was dark. Okay? So we get that, that detail either in Matthew or John. Now, the sea is stirred up. There's a storm. There's a strong wind blowing. We get this detail that there, the boat was 25 or 30 stadia away from where the feeding of the 5,000 occurred. So nobody here knows what a stadion is, much less stadia. It, it, it's basically about 600 feet. So the Sea of Galilee is about seven miles wide. 
if you do the math, they the disciples are right in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. They're right in the middle of whatever you want to call it, Lake Tiberias, Lake Gennesaret. It has all these different names, but they're right in the middle of it. And we get some more details in Matthew. The boat was being battered. The wind was against them. We get another detail. It's the fourth watch of the night. So whereas they depart in the evening, we're now somewhere between three, what we would call 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., the fourth watch of the night. The first watch would be 6 to 9, then 9 to 12, then 12 to 3, then 3 to 6. And it's sometime during those you know, the the darkest hours just before the dawn. Sometime in those pre-dawn hours, Matthew says he came to them walking on the sea. He came to them walking on the sea. Now, this isn't the first time we've had some situation where there's been a storm, where the sea's been blowing, where the the wind's been raging, where there's a a perception of danger. Uh, We've seen before that Jesus was sleeping in the boat, This time he is walking to them on the sea. And they think they're seeing a ghost and they cry out in fear. And Jesus says, verse 20, It is I, do not be afraid. So this is a parallel passage in Peter 1? We're getting there. We're getting there. Uh, Because that's that's the next thing I want to say. That no, well, that was before. That's another. That that's another situation. That that that's something that's happened in the past that they know about that happened. But here, this is where Matthew fourteen gives us some more details. He says, "Take courage; it is I. Do not be afraid." And 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 Matthew fourteen twenty eight. And Peter answered and said to him, "Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water." So, you know, we we know this this episode. Jesus obliges. Come on down. And Peter uh, gets out of the boat and walks on the water and comes toward Jesus, uh, Matthew 14, 29. But we also know what happens next, don't we? Yeah. Um, what do you think John didn't include it? I mean, do you think John and Paul were a little jealous? I mean, he, he did not I don't know. There's a lot of details in the other Gospels John doesn't include. Yeah. Uh, and, and, I, I just think. I well, you know, I think that John that John is including this passage, and of course, the Holy Spirit's inspiring him. Uh, I, I think John is making a different point than Matthew is here, maybe, and, and we're gonna see that that you know, John John is. This is the whole episode of of Matthew uh, telling about Peter and what he's about to start sinking. John is in the middle. This whole John six thing. I keep talking about you know this whole chapter. John, this is just one little part in in a bigger story. John's telling in this chapter, whereas Matthew is dealing with things a little bit more acutely. In his gospel, there. The, the ultimate answer to your question is I don't know, but that's just speculation. Yeah. Yeah. 
And Peter's definitely not over matter because when he looks around and sees himself walking on the water and the wind's blowing and he gets frightened, he begins to sink into the matter, um, into the liquid matter at least. And he's crying out, Lord, save me. Now, you of little faith, why did you doubt? That's what Jesus says in, in Matthew 14, 31. You of little faith, why did you doubt? I was going back over this yesterday, and it, it struck me that Jesus didn't say, you don't have any faith, do you? You have you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Um, and, and so, you know, kind of at this point, Peter's faith and, and that of most of the rest of the 12 is not unlike the nation of Israel. They've got a little bit of faith. But it's it's not what it needs to be for sure, not much. I literally laughed out loud at that verse as I prepared sermon for because you know you sit there with that feel a little faith by the cow. I did walk on water, Jesus. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Um. There's a little bit of genuine faith out there in Israel, but there's not much. Um. The, the 12 have more exposure to Jesus, but ultimately they express the same type of faithlessness right up to the cross. And after the cross, right up to the resurrection. They express the same type of faithlessness, rather it be uh, Jesus feeding the masses or walking on water or keeping his promise that he will be raised on the third day. They have the same type of, of of little faith. So when Jesus gets on the boat, not only does the wind stop, but suddenly they're on the other side of the sea. It's like, let me just cut this trip short. Let's just go ahead and get... So he somehow, they're all transported to the finish line of their short journey. And what happens here in Matthew 14? Uh, if you're there, you see it. If not, I'm going to read it to you anyway. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are truly God's son. That is significant. That's different. Let me tell you why. Does anybody remember what happened when they were in the boat before? When Jesus is sleeping in the boat, when they're like, How are you sleeping here? And Jesus gets up and says, Shut up, wind. And it stops. Anybody remember what they said after that? What the twelve said about Jesus after that? No, not that point. Who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? What kind, in other words, what kind of man is this that weather obeys him? They're graduating a little bit here. They're not asking what kind of man are you. They're saying this is truly God's son. They are going from fifth to sixth grade here in their understanding a little bit. That's interesting to see. They get to the other side. The next day, people realize that Jesus is there. The crowds begin flocking to him again. They're bringing their sick wherever Jesus is going. They're bringing their sick. They're pleading with him that they might just touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were cured. I mean, that's what's going on in Matthew 14 when we see this i'm gonna go back to uh, john 6 now and uh, we'll see how 
fast or slowly we can take this to get to my stopping point for the day. Um, let me turn my page. So in John 6.25, they are asking, Rabbi, when did you come here? And this is about to begin one of the most important discourses in all of the New Testament. Uh, your, your, your commentators will call this the bread of life discourse. Of course, I think I've probably called it that a couple times, and that's fine if we want to call it that. Um, that's what we're getting to. But, Tim, I kind of have points today like you do. Yeah, the first, so the first thing I want you to see is the felt need of the people. The felt need. One of the biggest problems with all of humanity today and every other day that's ever since the Garden of Eden is that we live according to our felt needs, okay? We equate our felt needs with gospel truth, and more often than not, they are a lie from the devil, our felt needs. They do, oh, well, well, when we, let's see a felt need, okay? Jesus answered them and said, I'm in 626 now of John. Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I said to you, by the way, anytime he says truly, truly, pay attention. You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So, Jesus is laying bare their superficial desire for food and miracles. Now, Jesus says, when he says, not because you saw signs, let me tell you what he's not saying there. He's not saying that they weren't itching to see more miracles. Okay? That word signs there is a significant word in the book of John. One of the things he is going to say to the Jews elsewhere in the Gospels is what? An evil an adulterous generation seeks a sign. So it's not that they weren't itching for miracles. But it's best to understand what Jesus says here is that they weren't coming to see the signs of Messiah. Now, one of the things John does throughout his gospel is, is there are seven signs that Jesus is the Messiah in the book of John. The first time we see this is back in John 2.11. Now in John 2.11, that is where he turns the water into wine in Cana. And we see this. Uh, um, Jesus did this in Cana of Galilee as the beginning of his signs and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So John notes that the Turning the water into wine is the first of his signs that show that he's the Messiah. Okay? We see it in John 4.54. In John 4.54, um, he heals a, a royal official's son. And John notes at the end, this is again a second sign that Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So, more recently, we saw John six fourteen after <clears throat> he fed the 5,000. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had done, they were saying, this is truly the prophet who is to come to the world. So, in other words, they weren't truly seeking their Messiah. 
They were seeking temporary satisfaction, which comes from food, which comes from being entertained, which comes from seeing the next big thing, the stuff of the world. Okay? Huh? The felt needs. The felt needs. And a lot of churches, that's what whole church growth ministry is built on. Oh, yes, it was. And I could spend the rest of our time talking about that. I'll, I'll try not to. Yeah. You get a children's director, a children's director setting in, and you look after children, the people are going to come because they want the children to If you change music, if you have this program, if you do this, if you do that, if you build a new building, if you. Put a fog machine up on the stage, yep. get the lights turned down low, and let the lights flow in the fog. If you make people feel good, you know. You know. Th- 30 seconds aside here. 30 seconds. Whoever determined that a good morning of worship at church ended with everybody leaving happy? That's a felt need. Sometimes you need to be leaving the preaching of the word in absolute brokenness because you're repenting of your sins. 30 seconds. I don't even know if I did 30 seconds, but we're going to move on. Uh, Leon Morris, great Bible commentator. They were not moved by full hearts, but by full bellies. I can't really put it any better than that. They witnessed the signs, but they didn't grasp the spiritual implications. So so they got the physical satisfaction, but their hearts aren't right. And we're going to see this the further we get into this. Even the 12, before they confessed, you are truly God's son, uh, had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. So that's the felt needs of the people. Now I want you to see the real need of the people. What does Jesus say? Verse 27, 627. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, set his seal. So the felt need is, I want my belly full. I want my 401k. I want to feel safe, secure. By the way, <laughs> you know how they they uh, they marketed the, the COVID vaccine as safe and effective? That's what they're doing with early voting now. Have you noticed? <laughs> safe, secure, and effective. Anyway, I'm going to shut up. I saw that. I saw that ad run a few times this week, and I'm like, that's a, they're, they're buzz. Man, they know how to. Mm. Oh no, I'm trying not to. Yeah, you make my heart stop. All right, I'm a. That's. Uh, I want. I'm. Let's get. I'm gonna. I'm gonna try not to editorialize. I just want to preach the word. I see her. Yeah. Jesus is rebuking the crowd for their materialism. For their sinful obsession with what will make them happy and satisfied now. Rather that be food, or rather that be entertainment, or rather that be fill in the blank. Not unlike us, you know, we're the same way. But instead, work for the food which endures to eternal life, he says, which the Son of Man will give to you. You can't get it anywhere else. 
You can't be satisfied anywhere else. The Son of Man has to give it to you. And by the way, there's that phrase, that, that title, Son of Man again. And the Father said, so Jesus knew what the crowd needed physically, just as he knows what you and I need physically. But he was and he is much more interested in their spiritual well-being. Jesus points to himself. He's already identified himself as the Son of Man, that Messianic title from, from Daniel 7. He's, yeah, I'm the Son of Man, y'all. Jesus has repeatedly referred to himself by this well-known title that every Jew should have recognized. Then Jesus makes a call back to his baptism. The Son of Man is the one on whom the Father set his seal. The Son of Man is the one on whom the Father audibly voiced his approval. The Son of Man is the one on whom the Holy Spirit descended as a dove. There's no ambiguity here. There's zero ambiguity here in what Jesus is saying to them. In John 5, which we built up in John 5 to where we are now, what did we see there? They were ticked off at Jesus because he made himself equal with God. There is zero ambiguity in the words of Jesus. Um, those who would attack the doctrine of Christ, whether they be Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or atheists, progressive Christians, they would attack the doctrine of Christ, saying, you know, Jesus actually never calls himself God. You just aren't reading the Bible. If you, if you ever believe that, you're just not reading the Bible. You're flat out denying it. He absolutely declares his Messiahship and his equality with God again. So Jesus is showing the end. They got the felt needs of the people. Jesus is like, I'm the real need of the people. And then what's the requirement of the people? What should we do? Verse 28, what should we do so that we may work the works of God? That's a reasonable question. Jesus, you're saying that the Son of Man is going to give us to us. God's on the one God said it. Then what do we do? What do we do? It's a reasonable question, even if it's not rooted in faith. What should we do so that we may work the works of God? And of course, at the core of what we've been seeing in this study is that the Jews did not truly believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They didn't really believe he's the Son of God, at least not as a nation. There were pockets here and there. There were a few here and there. Many were wowed by him. Many followed him around, obviously, but their so-called faith was superficial. It was a, a mile wide and an inch deep. So their question is rooted in what they can do, not on what Jesus is going to do for them. What should we do? And Jesus responds in verse 29, a very, very, very important verse. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So, whereas the Jews are asking what should we do? What work should we do? How do we do the works of God? Jesus said, the work is to believe. The work is to believe. Now, 
let's think about what Jesus said to the Jews at the end of John 5. Yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not see the glory that is from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus has already said to them, you don't really believe. <coughs> so the work of God, it's the work of God, by the way. So it starts with the Holy Spirit doing a work in the heart. The work of God is to believe in him, Jesus, whom he, the Father, has sent. And again, John five twenty four, we see the cross reference. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So Jesus here is straight out tying the Jews' salvation and the, and the salvation of each and every one of them to believing in him. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He is your hope. He's the one who's going to give you everything you need. You need to trust him. In him. You need to believe in him. If you believe what Moses said, you will believe in him. So that's the requirement of the people. What is the response of the people? So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? Are you kidding me? What work do you perform? Are you kidding me? Now, I, I say that incredulously. Guess what? That's evangelical Christianity in a nutshell. What, what great thing are we going to see next? What great move of God are we going to see next? What great revival can we skip? By the way, a buddy of mine on social media called all those churches around the Asbury College that was doing that revival last year. You know what he found out? No growth in membership. No substantial thing happened since that they all went home. But what, what's going on around us? What great Christian artist is going to release a great album that's going to sing a song? We're all going to get moved, you know. We're all looking for something. Show us another sign. What will you do for us? Do something else and we'll believe you. They're, they're superficial, they're selfish, they're shallow in their curiosity, they're spiritually blind. Yeah. Do not get. He gets us, but not like that. We'll talk about. We'll talk about that another time. These are obtuse people, y'all. They are obtuse. They are. They are a stiff-necked and obstinate people. And that's not a phrase I came up with. In Exodus 33, after the golden calf, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are a stiff-necked people, lest I consume you on the way. So they worship a golden calf. God's like, get out of here. Go. Of course, Moses intercedes, but... Deuteronomy 9, verse 6, the second generation of Israelites 
Surely they've learned. So you shall know it is not because of your righteousness that Yahweh your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. You are a stiff-necked people. Not your parents were, but you are. Well, surely after the exile, surely after the exile, things have gotten better, right? If I can find my place in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. I only have so many bookmarks in my Bible. You alone are, wait a second, is it verse 16? But they, our fathers, acted presumptuously. They became stiff-necked and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds, which you did among them. So they became stiff-necked and gave themselves a chief to return to their slavery in Israel. I'm not going to finish the verse, but the rest of Nehemiah, yeah, Nehemiah ends with repentance being needed because they're still stiff-necked. My favorite one comes in Acts 7.51. That's one that's not like the others. That's in the New Testament. In Acts 7.51, doesn't that occur after the resurrection, and after the ascension of Jesus, and after Pentecost? And Surely Israel's learned their lesson by now, right? No, this is at the conclusion of Stephen's sermon. And I cannot overemphasize the importance of Stephen's sermon and what they do to him. Um, when our lessons get into the book of Acts, I will elaborate on this more, but this is absolutely one of the very biggest moments in the history of history. Uh, and it gets overlooked. But Stephen goes on this whole thing where he basically excoriates the Pharisees and the Jews and what, because, and he goes all through Israel's history and he ends with you men stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And that one is really interesting when you consider the martyrdom of Stephen that's about to happen right after that and the man holding the coats of those who threw the stones. The man we come to know as Paul. And that's the last time we see that phrase stiff-necked in the scriptures, by the way which in and of itself is very interesting, but more on that later. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. Both and, not, not one or the other. Do you understand what he's asking? In Exodus... Sometimes we see that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and other times we see that God hardened his heart. So are the Jews doing the same thing? Are they hardening their hearts, or is God hardening their hearts? Yes. Because it's all according to God's plan to bring about something. There's this, there's, there's this break in the program of Israel that we've talked about, you know, the break between the 69 weeks and the 70th week. And in the middle of that, break, there's this anomaly in all of history called the body of Christ, which you and I are a part of today. We'll get to that more, we'll, but that's a good question. That's a good question. Look what they, look how they respond though. What work do you perform? 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. 
<coughs> is it, as it is, oh gosh, I ran out of time. We'll stop there. We'll pick up there next week. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's a debated issue. Um, Hebrews is is kind of a book where some things are mixed up, and it's for that reason it's one of the hardest books for some interpreters. And I've heard good arguments on both sides. Is he? Because if you think about it, the book of Hebrews deals more, while, while the main audience of Hebrews is definitely Jews, definitely Jews, that list of people includes people who aren't Jews. There were no Jews in the, the purest sense of the word Jew, an Israelite. There were no Israelites before Jacob. Jacob's the one whose name was changed. Jacob's the one who had 12 sons who make up the 12 tribes. That's a little off topic, but it's a good, no, it's good. We're going to stop there, but but what we see is there's two programs. One's the prophetic program, the one that things are revealed to Israel. The one is what Paul's going to end up calling a mystery. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We did not get close to where I thought I'd get today, but that's good. That's fine. Uh, Father, we pray, Lord, that you will take what we have gotten through today, help us to digest it, help us to think upon it, help us to come back next week for more, um, help us to be eager to learn your word, help us to be eager to rightly understand it, to rightly divide the word of truth. Uh, we want to be diligent students of scripture. We want to understand what you've revealed. We want to, even more than we did coming in today, John six twenty nine. we want to believe in the one whom you have sent. So, Father, we thank you for Christ. We glorify him. We seek to honor and praise him as we rest in him today. As his, we're, we're, we're the body of Christ. Praise the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.